Founded in 1925. It's fascinating that Travelers, you know, creates the radio station, and they did it really early, 1925. That was the very early days of radio. WTIC is news. This is Bob Steele speaking to you from the front yard of Victory House. Here at the state capitol, Connecticut is paying its official tribute to the memory of the late President John F. Kennedy. WTIC Radio presents a visit with Governor of the State Chester Bowles at home. Most of what we hear about the energy crisis talks about a shortage of heating oil for the winter or added fuel for summer driving. Ever since September 11th, it was just a matter of time before they actually sent us overseas. Connecticut, we're all in this together. Entertainment. We hear from Montevalli in the orchestra, Moon River. We'll be playing uh, two songs back to back. That's one of the eight million selling records that Artie Shaw and his orchestra recorded. It's called Back Bay Shuffle. Morgan, this is Tony Orlando. Opinion. This is Rush Limbaugh on Connecticut's great radio station, WTIC 1080. Ladies and gentlemen, your calls work. This is your legislators responding to a common sense approach. Thank you, your WTIC. Sports. Outboard races on the Connecticut River at Hartford. And the Whalers jump 25 feet in the air without emotional goal. Connecticut is the best. Basketball capital of the country for 2004. Personality. These look like uh, peanut butter cookies. They are. Okay. Our journey to celebrating 100 years of WTIC News Talk 1080. On Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Hey everybody, it's Morgan Cunningham and yes, welcome to the broadcaster at 100. We're 99 years old and proud to be marching our way toward 100 years of broadcasting in Connecticut. And this whole show series idea came to me, believe it or not, four years ago is when I started to work on this. I said, you know, this is coming up, and I need to start finding audio and research and reach out to people for interviews and conversation, and we've got to make a series out of this. And I didn't end up knowing at the time that I would eventually one day be hosting the Saturday afternoon talk show. And so all of this really did start falling into place more recently that I was able to come up with the broadcaster at 100 series. And my goal is to play back some old audio. We'll have some great time with some throwbacks. And we're also going to have conversation in the present day about our history and what that means for us today. And also, when applicable, going into the future. Now, it makes sense, right, for us to do on this first program a retrospective of exactly where we came from in the 1920s. Our very first broadcast officially was on February 10th, 1925. We had test broadcasts going back a few months before then. And yeah, that's about the first five or so years of broadcast radio as we know it today. So we were a pioneer, certainly in Connecticut, in all of America. We were not the first broadcaster in either Connecticut or in America, but certainly we have made our mark in Connecticut and in the country in the nearly 100 years that we have been on the air. Before we bring on our guest, John Ramsey, he is a broadcast engineer and a historian on the side as well. He's even written a book about Connecticut radio history. And what I want to do is play an excerpt of a recording from our 25th anniversary special, yes, on February 10th, 1950, the Travelers Insurance Company, our founder, hence WTIC, hosted an anniversary salute that started off something like this. On the evening of February 10th, 1925, Vice President Walter G. Coles introduced radio station WTIC to listeners all over America. Planning the initial purpose of the new station, Mr. Coles said, in part, We look upon ourselves as trustees 
of that part of the air which we shall from time to time occupy. And we mean to have due regard for that trusteeship. For this air is the common property of all, and its use for any improper or unworthy purpose would, in our judgment, be a violation of a trust. Twenty-five years later, the following telegram was received from the Honorable William Benton, United States Senator from Connecticut. My congratulations to WTIC on completing 25 years of public service to the people of Connecticut. In an infant industry, your station now becomes an elder statesman with new responsibilities of courage and leadership. May your next quarter century be as full of accomplishment and as rewarding as the first toward the goal of better communication and understanding among all peoples everywhere. In those pioneer days of radio, Mr. Coles envisioned a novel and effective means of communication for his company, whereby it could talk to its representatives throughout the United States and Canada and to families in their homes, giving them news of the world and news of the travelers. His dream came true, for WTIC has received fan mail from every state in the Union, every province in Canada, and, in fact, halfway around the world. Letters from listeners in Australia and New Zealand are still received occasionally. And that is how our story got started, as told by those who founded us, the Travelers Insurance Company, at our 25th anniversary celebration, February 10th, 1950. John Ramsey, our guest for the rest of this hour, and don't worry, we do have some more throwback audio. I know a lot of you are excited about that, as am I. John's with us to talk about Connecticut radio history and how WTIC got off to its start in those first 25 years or so of existence. John, could you paint a picture of what Connecticut radio looked like in the early to mid-1920s? There were some visionaries here in Connecticut in the early 20s, Franklin Doolittle uh, of he owned an appliance store in New Haven. Uh, he founded WDRC in early 1922. It's the state's first station. Uh, he, had, he had a vision uh, that broadcasting could be big, but on a practical basis, you can't. He, he wanted to sell radios. He was selling the appliances, you know, hot plates and toasters and stoves and things that people purchased back then. You can't sell radios unless there's a station to listen to. So he wanted to sell radios. There were no stations in Connecticut. So he started WDRC in the back of the appliance store in 1922. And so he was able to sell records. So it was the, that was the sell radio. So that was the first broadcast station in, in Connecticut. Around the same time, the Hartford Current had WDAK, which is a station that only lasted three or four years. They saw that broadcasting maybe have potential. And at stores at the uh, Connecticut Agricultural College, which was the predecessor of UConn, they had WCAC. There was a professor there, an electronics professor, that convinced the, the school to build a radio station. And again, that only lasted for a few years as well. WTIC went on in 25. It's still been going strong after all the, all these decades. WTIC, John, really is a heritage radio station, meaning that we have stayed true to our mission since day number one. Yes, we've had some adjustments, but we have not had any radical format changes. What we're doing today, which is focused on local community information and talk, is largely what they were doing in the 1920s, wasn't it? WTIC, owned by the Travelers Insurance Company for the first 50 years, you know, that was a huge financial institution. Initially, they had planned to have WTIC just as a publicity arm to bring the word of travelers to the masses and to let people know what travelers was all about. Later on, they realized it didn't take them very long. A few years later, they realized the importance of broadcasting and how it would really fit into the 
scheme of educating and, and uh, enlightening and educating the public and informing the public with ed- both entertainment and news programming. And just to literally spell it out for our listeners, TIC stands for Travelers Insurance Company. Yeah. Heritage call letters. I love that. Never changed. Some stations have changed call letters a dozen times in, in 50 or 60 years. And we've got the same call letters here from day one. I'm speaking with John Ramsey, Connecticut radio engineer and historian on Spotlight Connecticut, celebrating the broadcaster at 100. John, tell us all about that very first WTIC broadcast, would you? The first test broadcast happened in December of 1924 on WTIC. And the first voice I heard on the air was that of Walter Coles, who was the Traveler's Vice President. And uh, in, in preparation for the broadcast, which took about two hours, they recruited talent from within Travelers. And listeners to that first broadcast could have heard the 50-voice Travelers Choral Choir, which was a club that Travelers had. And then in January, it didn't take very long, in January 20, uh, of 1925, they received their license to operate 500 watts on 860 kilohertz. They didn't go to 1080 until the 40s. They were on 1040 before that. There was all these treaties that kept on changing with Canada and, and uh, other countries where there was international uh, treaties to change frequencies around to try and make things more organized. A lot of stations were interfering with each other. So the first official broadcast took place at 745 in the evening on Tuesday, February 10th, 1925. Uh, the VP, Walter Coles, gave an opening speech that was followed by live musical performances, including a male quartet from the Mendelssohn Glee Club of New York, a piano recital, and then the station's first remote broadcast took place, which was the Emil Heimberger Trio performing live on WTIC from the ballroom at Hartford's Hotel Bond. That all took place on the first broadcast day. And, you know, to do remote broadcasts now, it's simple. We use the Internet. We have a handheld device. You can go You could go to anywhere. You can go to the International Space Station, Morgan, and broadcast. But back then, it took a whole truckload of equipment. So it's pretty cool that they did that. John, one of the things that I hear all the time from people is, wow, listen to WTIC's signal. It pretty much goes all over Connecticut for the most part. Maybe there are some areas where it's weaker and other areas where it's more powerful. But our signal does have an impressive reach. Could you talk about our signal strength and how that adjusted in our earliest years and what that actually means for the station and also, frankly, for the listeners of Connecticut and the tri-state area? It was 500 watts compared to the 50,000 watts that we have now. The power of the station determines how much area it covers. That has changed dramatically because back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s even, the electrical interference that was out in the real world was low, so signals carried much further. I mean, it, it, at one time or another, once WTIC switched to 50,000 watts in 1929, they were heard in, in, in every continent in the world. They had letters from listeners from Antarctica and Australia and Asia. So the coverage was amazing, in part because there weren't many stations on, but also because the noise level was, was not uh, very high. If you've ever uh, put your cell phone next to your radio or next to your computer speakers and heard that weird buzzing sound, that's a type of electrical interference that's prevalent and is really everywhere that makes radio stations seem to not go as far because there's so much more noise. All right, John and WTIC fans, can you believe that I actually found a recording, yes, of our very last broadcast on that 500-watt transmitter? The date was July 30th, 1929, that this was recorded about a half hour before midnight. Now, I will warn you that this recording is rather poor quality, and that it is very scratchy. I did actually make attempts to clean it, or else you wouldn't be able to understand what's being said. Even still, it will be a struggle, so I will actually read a transcription of what's said here after the audio is played. I think it's just so important that I play the original audio, just to get us all in that mindset. Thank you. 
Absolutely fascinating to hear it, but if you want to know exactly what was said, here is my transcription. The time is now at hand when we must discontinue the present transmission equipment of WTIC, the broadcasting service of the travelers in Hartford, Connecticut, to render a better and highly efficient station. The ultimate power of the new station is 50,000 watts. We shall begin our broadcasting on the new station at 5,000 watts and continue with that power until we feel we may safely and properly increase it. John, they built a specific facility in Avon just to handle this power increase. Talking with John Ramsey, Connecticut engineer and radio historian. The 50,000 watts uh, from Avon Mountain required travelers to build a huge building. So they built a 12,000 square foot building that's still there today. We're still using it. It looked like an old, you've been there, Morgan. It's a beautiful building. It looks like a, they wanted it to look like a New England mansion. So it's brick. It's got uh, uh, beautiful windows. And uh, it all if there that, weren't towers and satellites around yeah, it, you would never know, you, honestly, that it was for radio and now TV as the, well. The 12,000 square feet included uh, a complete machine shop, a kitchen, a bathroom, a restroom with a shower, bunk rooms. The weather forecasting was almost non-existent back then, and nobody had four-wheel drive in, 19, in the late 20s and early 30s. So the engineers would get stuck up there and not be able to drive home, so they'd spend the night in the bunk room and be able to cook themselves breakfast in the fully equipped kitchen. Uh, the facility was completely shielded because the amount of our radio signal that put out by the 50,000 watt signal right in the backyard could cause trouble. Uh, and uh, it took 12,000 square feet, was crammed full of equipment to keep just WTIC AM on the air. Now that building contains WTIC AM, WTIC FM, and Channel 3 television, and there's space to spare. Things have gotten so much smaller. There also were 24 engineers working in three shifts, 24 hours a day to keep it going. People like me and Channel 3's engineer go up there a couple of times a week to adjust things and check on things. Big change. And here's a fun fact for everybody. There was a time when it was thought that WTIC would be broadcasting not at 50,000 watts, but 500,000 watts. And there's proof of that at the WTIC transmitter site. John, think about that for a moment. Yeah, there was a possibility. WLW in Cincinnati had authorization for 500,000 watts, which was, they called it the nation stations. Even during the day, it covered almost coast to coast. So when WTIC was built in 1929, when they upgraded the station to move the towers from downtown Hartford to uh, Avon, they uh, they designed it for that high power, which the FCC never approved. WLW only had the authorization for a few years, and then nobody else got that kind of power. My guest this week on Spotlight Connecticut is John Ramsey, a radio station engineer who happens to do engineering for us, but also a Connecticut radio historian as we celebrate part one of our Broadcaster at 100 series. Happy birthday, WTIC. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi, this is Robert H. Steele, one of the sons of WTIC's Bob Steele. And you're listening to Morgan Cunningham, wishing WTIC a very happy anniversary. And I do promise that we will hear from not only Robert H. Steele, but also Phil Steele about their father, WTIC's morning personality, Bob Steele, later on in our Broadcaster at 100 series. You won't want to miss any of those. Our guest this week is John Ramsey. John's with us looking at WTIC's founding and our earliest years through John's eyes as a radio historian and also a radio broadcast engineer. 
John, I want to talk a little bit now about content in those earliest years on WTIC. What do we know about those earliest years? November 15th, 1926 is when they became the fourth station in the NBC network. TIC had already been doing local news, but 80 years before the internet and before wire services, the advantage of going with a national network is it gave you national and international news that you couldn't easily get on a local basis. Correct. Along with entertainment shows and, you know, Benny Goodman live broadcasts and things like that. John, while you mentioned those entertainment shows, when WTIC turned 25, February 10th, 1950, NBC Network paid tribute to us in a number of their broadcasts. Here's a little montage of some of them. All of us on the life of Riley wish a very happy anniversary to station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. WTIC and NBC have had a happy marriage for 25 years. So happy silver anniversary. The Jimmy Durante Show from Hollywood. Don, how long have you been in radio? Well, Jimmy, it's almost 20 years now since I first stood before a microphone. Well... Then you're going to appreciate what it means when a 50,000-watt station celebrates its 25th anniversary. And station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, has been right in there with the best of them for 25 years, as of tonight. And I personally want to congratulate them for staying with me and NBC. From the halls of Ivy, our heartiest congratulations to station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, on this, their 25th anniversary. I'm a little disappointed, though. They don't say it in the recording, but that is Bob Hope wishing us a happy 25th anniversary again, February 10th, 1950. And we are moving toward our 100th anniversary. We are currently 99 on our way to turning 100 February 10th, 2025. We're talking about content. And John, our guest for this installment of Spotlight Connecticut, the broadcaster at 100, I do want to know a little bit more about how the studios were set up because the content needs were different, therefore the production had to have been different. Pretty much until the 50s, every person that was on the air just sat behind a microphone, as I'm doing now, and spoke. And across the glass, as you are, Morgan, there was an engineer at the control board that was uh, running, making sure the levels were proper, playing the music, if that's what you were doing, queuing up different news reports and things. So there were two two people involved with all those shows. So Bob had uh, had an engineer across the studio from him. It, uh, it carried on. Uh, the, the combo operators are what they called it. By the time Top 40 took over, most DJs were doing all that themselves, certainly by the late 60s. But Bob still had an engineer the entire time. That was part of the deal that he had here, which was nice. And talk about staffing, in 1950, WTIC had over 150 musicians on payroll, not full-time. Wow. But because until, in, until the 40s, stations weren't even allowed to play pre-recorded music. They weren't allowed. Early on, early phonograph recording sounded terrible. The quality wasn't very good. But because of rights issues, they weren't allowed to play recordings on the air until sometime in the late 30s. So stations like TIC had, had musicians. They had a... Uh, you know, a classical uh, ensemble, a small one. They had a large one. They had a jazz trio that could play because most of their programming, which was, you know, game shows and radio drama and uh, talk shows, things like that, they'd have a live audience, a live audience and live music because they couldn't have stuff pre-recorded by law. Broadcast engineer and Connecticut radio historian John Ramsey with us this week on Spotlight Connecticut, celebrating the broadcaster at 100 our series looking at WTIC turning 100 next February 10th, 2025. 
Talking about those earliest studios, I'll leave you guys with this nugget before we go into the break. Laura Godet, the first studio pianist, welcomed back to celebrate the 30th anniversary of WTIC two days before the actual anniversary, February 8th, 1960. Here's an excerpt. It's so good to have you back. Good afternoon, Laura. Oh, good afternoon, Ross. It's indeed a great privilege for me to be back. It's just wonderful to see you all and to know that I am also being heard again on WTIC. Mm. A great anniversary, I would say. <laughs> Certainly is. And good to see this old piano really warmed up in fine style. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it's been a long time. It but sure has. This was the first program in a week-long observance of WTIC's 35th anniversary, which occurs on February 10th. We'll continue to discuss our formative years in just a moment. I'm Morgan Cunningham at Spotlight Connecticut with our guest John Ramsey as we mark the broadcaster at 100 on WTIC News Talk 1080. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hey, Sean Hannity here, and you're listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham, and we are all celebrating the broadcaster at 100. Our guest this week on Spotlight Connecticut, the broadcaster at 100 series is John Ramsey. John happens to be our WTIC engineer. He's a radio engineer and a Connecticut radio historian, and he's talking with us about WTIC's founding and the earliest years. We've been spending a few minutes before the break talking a little bit about our content mix, and a big part of that has, no doubt, since day number one in 1925, which would be February 10th, local news. That has been a major part of our identity ever since the very beginning. John, let's talk about some of those earliest news stories. We've got the 1936 flood. That was a big one. The first big flood that was covered by radio in Connecticut was 1936, and there's photographs in my book of them broadcasting uh, coverage of the flood from the uh, uh, observation deck at the Traveler's Tower. Now, the Traveler's Tower was owned you know, by Traveler's Corporation, which owned WTIC. Uh, it's interesting, when they built the building in 1919, it was the seventh tallest structure in the world. Think about that. And so they had wow. access to the observation deck up on the, twenty, I think, 26th floor, and they broadcast from there in the 36th flood and the 38th hurricane, and then again in 1955 for the flood that devastated downtown Hartford. When WTIC turned 40, February 10th, 1965, they brought back Supervisor of Engineers Al Jackson to tell the story of broadcasting live during the 1936 flood. WTIC stayed on the air with... Uh battery-operated equipment downtown here in the downtown area. We used our battery-operated remote amplifier because all our AC-operated equipment was dead because the Dutch Point power station had gone out. It was completely surrounded by water, as a matter of fact. And the only way that we could communicate was from the top of the Traveler's Tower where we had uh, what was known in those days as five-meter equipment. And... Uh, WTIC had this equipment, but in order to operate it without power up there, it was necessary to use storage batteries, of course, and uh, Fred Edwards and I carried many a storage battery from the street level to the top of the Traveler's Observation Tower 
just to operate this this equipment. It wasn't an easy job. Less than a decade after that happened, you've got July 1944. What's happening then? You have the Allied forces pushing across Europe, and those at home in Connecticut were hoping that they'd have the chance to relax a little bit in those dog days of summer. They were certainly enjoying the excitement of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus under the Big Tent in Hartford on July 6th, when suddenly the faces of smiling, excited circus fans turned into masks of panic. Bernard Mullins and George Bow, anchoring during the evening newscast, were called being there when that fire happened. Well, Hartford this afternoon suffered one of the greatest catastrophes in its history, when during a matinee performance of Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the big tent suddenly burst into flame and burned to the ground, causing more than a hundred deaths and unestimated casualties. WTIC's George Bow and myself were on the grounds within a few minutes after the conflagration had leveled the big show, and while smoke was still rising from the horrible mass of canvas and poles and bleachers. That's right, Bernard. According to eyewitnesses at the scene, the fire started at about 2.33 after the show had been underway a quarter of an hour, and we were on the grounds about 3 o'clock. Bernard, what was that story that the woman survivor told you there? Well, she was a lady from Meriden, George, attending the show with her six-year-old son. Fortunately, they were seated near an exit at the far end of the tent and managed to escape. Her little boy was seated directly in front of her in the sixth row. The first indication of anything wrong came when the fire, the cry of fire was heard, and immediately a wisp of smoke came from the side wall near the front entrance. This lady pushed her youngster off the seat, and as he landed on the ground, she told him not to rush, but to keep going toward that exit. They were among the first dozen or so out. Yes, and that wisp of smoke developed in a matter of seconds into a blazing inferno. In fact, in two and a half minutes, the entire tent was enveloped in flames and had collapsed. Let's bring back on John Ramsey, our guest this hour on the broadcaster at 100, our first episode in the series celebrating WTIC's 100 years of broadcasting in Connecticut. We're 99 now, approaching 100 next February, and we are doing this year-long series on Spotlight Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham. John Ramsey's a radio engineer and a big Connecticut radio historian. Happy to have him with us. We're going a little bit out of sequence, I will admit. We went from the 1936 flood to the 1944 circus fire. Now we have to reverse a little bit, go to 1941 when America's involvement in World War II began. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. And with that, John, what do we know about WTIC and World War II? In the uh, transmitter building up on Avon Mountain, You've seen it, Morgan. There's a, a room in the basement that, I love is, that, that, room. that instead of a door has a vault door with a combination lock. And I couldn't figure out what that would be for, there for. Now, perhaps travelers wanted to store business records off-site, but the business records for a huge insurance company back in the 20s and 30s would take up an entire you know city block. Right, you know, they wouldn't have fit in they there. They wouldn't have fit in there. And then doing more research for my book, I, I found out that in when World War II started, the federal government was really worried about Nazi saboteurs called sappers, that saboteurs would be parachuted in in the middle of the night in advance of an invasion, and they would go to uh, they would go to power plants and try and blow them up. They'd go to radio stations and try and either take them off the air or take them over. They'd go to water plants, you know, uh, reservoirs and poison them, all the things you might do before an invasion. It's scary to think about. So the Federal Radio Commission, which was the predecessor of the FCC that we know today, said that every station must have under lock and key the two components that they couldn't buy locally. Now, radio shops were on every corner back then, back in the 30s and 40s. 
radio was big and people could buy parts to build their own. But the, uh, the crystal that c- controls the frequency of a radio transmitter and the final tubes that amplify it would have to be under lock and key. In WTIC's case, the tubes were 100,000-watt tubes the size of a large outboard motor, uh, taller than that, actually, so that they couldn't just put them into your typical wall safe. So they, they converted a room in the basement of the transmitter site into to storing those parts. So I'm, I'm, I don't have that factually, but I'm pretty sure that that's why they had those there. The other thing that we have record of is the uh, the U.S. Army stationed a garrison of troops in Avon at the tower site to protect the tower site for the duration of the war. Would there have been sensors in the studio? Yeah, the other thing that's pretty amazing to, to, that I, I, my research showed is that uh, any station that had newscasts, and many of them did, had a, a, a government sensor sitting in the newsroom that it would have to approve every script. And it wasn't uh, about propaganda. It was about denying the enemy Denying the enemy information about troop movements and ships sailing, you know, you could innocently say, oh, there's a bunch of U.S. Army uh, vans heading down towards uh, Groton, you know, to the pier there. So they wanted to make sure that nothing went out that would aid the enemy in, uh, in the war. It should be noted that during World War II, these were added. Our WTIC hourly time tones, which have a direct connection to World War II. John, could you tell us the story, please? In 1943, they uh, came up with the idea of honoring the soldiers that were fighting, had came up with the victory signal, which was the Morse code, which was V for victory. That's where the peace sign comes from, the V for victory. And then uh, one of the guys decided, let's make it musical and make it sound like, instead of make it sound like Beethoven's Fifth, the opening movements. And that has been on hourly on WTIC AM for 80 plus years. It was on the FM and TV as well for a long time. You found the actual blueprints for how to make that thing. (laughs) And looking at them, it was just so complicated. They really thought this through. They were mechanical originally. This is before solid state electronics back in the the 40s. So they had a, a series of wheels and tone generators that would be turned on and off by cams on the wheels that would trigger at the top of the hour. And it was done by timer? Yeah, but done by timer. Now it's all GPS synchronized, and uh, it's, there's, it's been there's been three different incarnations of it. The newest one is state of the art and tied into GPS, which is accurate down to the nanosecond. WTIC has a distinction of having the longest running time tone of any station in the country. Eighty plus years is a long time. And it's just on our AM. You can't hear it on the stream. It's not on FM HD two. It's just a thing that's unique to 1080 AM only. Right, because we can't control the time on the stream. If we had it on the stream, it would be off by 30 seconds or 60 seconds because internet streams are notoriously delayed. There's lots of latency because of the nature of the internet. Proud to be celebrating WTIC and everything that has been part of our station the last 99, almost 100 years. It's the broadcaster at 100. I'm Morgan Cunningham. Our guest, John Ramsey, will continue next. This is WTIC in Hartford. Hi there. This is Jody Rell, former governor, and I have to tell you, you're listening to Spotlight Connecticut with Morgan Cunningham. Happy birthday, WTIC. As we continue on the broadcaster at 100, I'm Morgan Cunningham on Spotlight Connecticut. We did make mention of Bob Steele earlier in the program, and it's important to know a little bit about who he is because he started 11 years after WTIC was founded. But be aware that we will have fully devoted shows about Bob Steele. I'm thinking two of them later on in the series with two of his sons, So that will definitely be worth a listen much later in our series. But John Ramsey, our Connecticut radio historian and broadcast engineer, who was Bob Steele and why was he so important on our station? He goes in the door for a demo or for, you know, an audition, gets hired on the spot, does a whole bunch of 
uh, odd shifts around the station. And then in 19, and that happened in 1936 is when he joined the staff, October. And then uh, a handful of years later in March 43, the morning host, Bob Hawthorne, goes into the Army. It's in the middle of World War II. Bob gets uh, – uh, Ben's wife for a few months does the show, but then they replace her with, uh, with Bob Steele. Uh, it goes from being the more, the G Fox Morning Watch was the name of the show under Ben Hawthorne. It was quickly changed to the Bob Steele Show, and he stayed on full time five days a week from 1943 to 1991. He's got the the record for the longest host in the same station in the same time slot of anywhere in the country. You mentioned G Fox. What do you know about the earliest sponsors? Well, it's interesting that I mentioned that that uh, the Travelers really started WTIC in 1925 as a publicity vehicle. They just wanted to promote their own what they were selling but also communicate with the public to be a part of the community and they realized that news and weather and things like that were part of that it wasn't for for five more years until 1930 when they came out with their first advertising rate card and they started selling spots because radio advertising was a new medium you know people first off there weren't a lot of radios out there and people it hadn't proved itself as a as a good way to to market a product but that changed pretty quickly so the uh, in 1930 they came up with their first rate card and started selling ads and the rest is history, as they say. Moving a little bit out of the realm of the 40s and 50s, WTIC had a very popular program in the early 1960s, and it went on for a number of years thereafter, called Mike Line. John Ramsey, our guest on Spotlight Connecticut, the broadcaster at 100. John, what was Mike Line all about? Mike Line was one of the first talk shows in American radio. It took place in the afternoons on, on 1080. I remember listening to it when I was a kid. It was telephone talk. They put the telephone on the air. Prior to that, they'd put the phone on the air if there was a news seven up. Uh, for instance, when the Hartford Circus fire took place uh, in 1944, the uh, there's stories of the the two reporters for Channel uh, for WTIC that had trouble finding a phone, and then once they found one, finding a phone that wasn't busy because everybody was making phone calls back then. But they phoned in their early reports of the circus fire. So using the phone on the radio went back probably to the 30s, but nobody had thought of using it to put listeners on the air until Mike Line came on in the early 60s, and they'd have people calling in with all sorts of questions. It wasn't political the way we think of talk radio now, but I remember hearing people calling up about uh, uh, often women because it was in, on in the early afternoon, and I think they were catering to women. Uh, I, uh, how do I get the red wine out of a, a, a rug? You know, they tip tips how to cook something, how to get stains out, things like that. How do I make my Thanksgiving dinner? Exactly. Yep. Before the butterball turkey line, right? And they had the beep every 15 seconds, which was required until the-, the If you were putting the phone on the on air, On the correct? air, and, and uh, they had a delay, so often people would go on the air and they'd have the radio on in the background and you hear the echo, and continue to turn your radio down. Listeners didn't understand why, but it was important. So it was a, a fun show to listen to, and uh, they'd talk about uh, politics to some extent, but mostly it was just kind of a helpline type thing. Let's play a little example of what Mike Line sounded like and how it worked. Notice- like John said, it's more focused on conversation and general information than it is on political fighting or arguing like what you might hear on talk radio today. And I also want to note that this excerpt I'm going to play with host John Stevens was recorded on September 15, 1976, which shows that this program survived quite some time on WTIC. And check out these phone numbers. Mike Line has an open line this afternoon. You can get on at 527-4188, or if you're calling from Southington or New Britain, the number is Enterprise 9842. Hi, you're on Mike Line. Uh, could you tell me when the Fort Town Fair is, please? The, again, please? Fort Town Fair. Fort Town Fair. Yes. That I don't know. If you do not hear on Mike Line before the afternoon is up, 
I think that information is available at the Hartford Public Library. Oh, okay. Okay? All righty, thank you. Thanks for your call. Gosh, we've uh, been all over the spectrum of uh, subjects and questions and whatnot. This is Mike Line on WTIC in Hartford. Obviously, during this whole Broadcaster at 100 series, we're celebrating WTIC AM 1080. But it's important to note that in the time period that we were mostly focusing on in this particular episode, there was also FM and there was TV. Let's go back to John Ramsey, our local Connecticut radio historian and our local broadcast engineer as well. John, tell us about WTIC TV. The original WTIC TV Channel 3. In the mid 50s, travelers, I think, probably because they saw how lucrative advertising sales could be on AM and FM, they decided to get into the, this brand new thing called television. I mean, the joke was, oh, it's never going to survive. It's just radio with pictures. That's what some famous pundit said. But uh, television, you know, the rest is history. We know how successful television's been. But Travelers was an early adopter, not the first in the state, but one of the early ones. And Channel 3 became uh, the, one of the premier, you know, TV channels in the state. A lot of the announcers from radio went over to television as well. Makes sense. Why pay extra people? With right, the, like people, Bob Steele, you could see him on Channel 3. Right. People with the good voices, why would you bother to hire more people? So, yeah, there was quite a bit of crossover, from what I'm told. It, with engineering, programming, sales, I'm sure it all went together. In one of our upcoming editions of the Broadcaster at 100, we're going to chat with Jim Stewart, who used to be a producer when WTIC was on AM, FM, and television all at the same time. And his efforts were focused largely on the TV station, but he's going to tell us about shared resources with AM and FM. I'm excited to get his perspective on all of that. Now, what we've been calling this episode, as I just did seconds ago, we're calling it the Broadcaster at 100. Now, there is some lineage with this. We were the broadcaster at 40 when we celebrated 40 years of broadcasting in 1965, the broadcaster at 50 in 1975, the broadcaster at 60 in 1985. We skipped over 70, 80, and 90, and I insisted that we continue with the same naming and calling this series the broadcaster at 100. But where does this term, the broadcaster, come from? Obviously, we're referring to our station But, John Ramsey, I'm hoping you could give us some more perspective as to who the broadcaster is, because he is a person, well, at least a statue of a man. It's right down the hall here. I mean, broadcasting, the term, predates radio. It was broadcasting seeds. Johnny Appleseed was a broadcaster. He would spread seeds into the field to, you know, uh, grow grow, uh, the crops. So the broadcaster was spreading seeds to the wind, whereas a radio station is broadcasting news and talk and music to the wind. Could you describe what that man and what the logo looked like? It's a, a wonderful metal, I think it's bronze statue, about five feet tall of a, of a guy with a satchel in front of him, uh, holding the almost like a, a, a purse in front holding the seeds. And he's got his hand in there and he's going to be spreading the seeds to the winds. And I had heard rumor that in the bag is 1,080 seeds for 1080, that his hand is holding three seeds for AM, FM, and television. That I didn't know. That sounds great. I like that. John, let me just say that I loved having you on the show today to talk about WTIC's formative years as we kick off our Broadcaster at 100 series. Any final thoughts? Stations like WTIC were instrumental in really providing the public with really important information about what was going on 
most FM stations don't have news departments. I'm speaking in generalizations. And TV stations do. But again, TV is the most fragile technology, both from a transmission standpoint. But again, I just ask you as a listener, do you have a portable TV at home that runs on batteries? And most people don't, don't have don't. that. And they're relying on the cable or at least on the electrical power. So AM can, can serve an important uh, uh, means of providing emergency communication. They found that during uh, 9-11 when, when the FM and TV stations were knocked off the air because most of them were on the Trade Center. They found that five or six years later during Katrina, the horrible storm that hit the, the, the Gulf Coast, they had you know six million people under evacuation notices. Again, who's got a TV in their car? Nobody. Most of the TV stations were off anyways. The FMs weren't doing good, but the a- everybody's got an AM radio in their car. So those six million people that were evacuating during their Gulf Coast knew where they could get medical help or a shelter or gas because there were a handful of radio stations like WTIC that had prepared for disasters and had multiple redundancies for generators and transmitters and were able to stay on the air. Now, the, n- the newest uh, threat to AM radio is that a lot of car manufacturers have been talking about getting rid of AM in the car, which is just from an emergency communication standpoint alone, I think that would be a huge mistake. And I'm Morgan Cunningham inviting you to listen to the next edition of The Broadcaster at 100, Saturday, March 30th from 2 until 3 in the afternoon on WTIC News Talk 1080. Thanks for celebrating our birthday with us.